Welcome to Season 2 of Visiting's Radio Show, where we talk to artists who are engaged with the public outside the traditional exhibition space. I'm Alan Nakagawa. On October 26, 2018, artist John Rivette took a group of us to see Armorello Ramp. Located, uh, of course, in Amarillo, Texas, this is Robert Smithson's final earthwork. This episode of Visiting's Radio Show, we're going to hear about how Amarillo Ramp influenced John's art practice and a glimpse into the spirit of Amarillo in this region of Texas that has inspired so many amazing works. Um, artists such as uh, Smithson, of course, John Chamberlain, Ant Farm, Ed Roche, and Georgia O'Keefe, just to name a few. My name is John Rivette. Uh, I am an artist and I am also assistant professor of painting and drawing at West Texas A&M University. So. How long have you been doing that? Uh, I have had the professorship for five years. I was an instructor and did part-time adjunct work for since 2005, so I've been doing it a while. Have you always been a painter? Uh, yeah. Always. I've tried all kinds of different types of work, but I always kind of return back to painting. Why? Uh, I love it. <laughs> I don't know. It's where I started, I think, and I think I'm very comfortable with that. Um, it's yeah. very meditative for me. Like, if I don't paint, I notice when I don't paint. Um, while I love all kinds of other art, I think that painting, to me, is really the source for everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When I've, you know, we've talked about your paintings mm -hmm. throughout this trip mm -hmm. and you often use the word meditative yeah and so uh could we talk a little bit about that yeah so uh, the newer work definitely is more um structural i really rely on these tessellation patterns you can see actually these paintings in this room are early versions of that idea um i found geometry very calming and very kind of connected to the source uh, of where i started art um i think in high school, I was very interested in classical art and really became interested in the classical geometry. And then, as we've discussed, uh, I talked, uh, or I, I was sort of exposed to Robert Smithson very at a younger age and saw the underlying geometry to that, and that always sort of spoke to me. Um, you know, he was very fond of the spirals and, and that kind of, even though he probably never used sacred geometry, it's definitely very present in his work. Um, and so it's something that I find very interesting. I find it very universal. Uh, I'm interested in making work that speaks to people, not just in this time period, but in the future. So that's kind of why I get into um, the idea of painting. And so what I essentially do is use the geometry as a armature to sort of break down these emotions. Uh, all of my current work actually comes from photographs and ideas and, and very literal uh, concepts and I figure that's a little bit too specific, a little too subjective and so I, I go through this sort of larger process of boiling them down, finding the right pattern, figuring out the right color palette, all of this stuff and it sort of allows me to process these images that may come from a specific moment in my life or something that has a lot of emotional weight and sort of let that all go uh, and so it becomes meditative in the process of just it's just something that's very complicated and the system while it is a complicated system is actually very relaxing for me to kind of walk through the steps of it mm -hmm. um there is some aspect of what i would call painting which is that 
um, allowing the painting to sort of grow on its own. You know, they talk about paintings. If you plan a painting out all day long or, or know every step of the painting, it's, it's really, uh, a lot of it is in just sort of the development. I mean, I would say of my painting practice, a third of it is actually putting paint on a canvas. The rest is planning it out and taping it off and mixing paint and thinking of the right idea. Um, I've also really got back into drawing again lately, so I really have been practicing how to break down the patterns in different ways and different types of techniques. Uh, it's sort of a preemptive idea on, on future paintings. <laughs> I've had friends move away who we've been able to talk, and I'm lucky that my studio mate Rob Weingart and I um, can converse. He went to Art Institute, and you know he can bring some of that back to me. And then going to London this year was eye-opening, massively so important. Let's talk about that. I remember you said two nights ago when you went to London, the conversations that you were having with other painters. Mm -hmm. Can you give me some samplings? Of yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I remember, so on the faculty, so Andrew Stahl, who is the undergraduate painting director at Slade College of Art, asked me to come to London. And I think when I got there, the first thing that I noticed is the paintings they were making at Slade were completely opposite of the paintings I was making. Like, very expressionist figurative paintings, very Philip Gaston, not a lot of abstract work, and no geometric work. Like, very strange. And I almost, I don't know if Andrew did this on purpose or just his very good instincts, but he brought me in sort of as a foil. Because when I started working, people were kind of standoffish about the work. And But once they saw me process and they saw me talk and they heard me see what I do, and they definitely softened and had... Um, you know, were more in, in asking more questions. And I noticed there was sort of a, a knack or a lack of that kind of design education. Uh, but I, you know, I had a conversation with one of the painting graduate painters and I was like, it's really weird because Slade now doesn't have a figurative drawing class. And Slade is like the history of figurative painting. Lucian Freud drew there and Francis oh, Bacon came wow. from there. And, and so it's really this kind of was strange to me that everybody's making this figurative work and there's not a figure drawing class. And I teach figure drawing, which is really weird for me, but I really understand that because it teaches you proportion and proportion boils it down to that geometry. And that's that sacred geometry is all based on human proportion. And so I always see it as a very clear link to the work I'm making and I was very confounded that they didn't have that there and I think one of the graduate students really explained it to me nicely was you know we grew up with the digital age you know and I was like you guys aren't using any computers or any of that there's a kind of painting out of their head and they're like we're trying to create our own identities without that which made a lot of sense to me And there's a, you know, there, there's a longer story and I, I could, I would have to find the proper documentation, but John Chamberlain worked in Amarillo from 1972 to 1975 in the summers. Uh, and he made a lot of his sculptures that you would see at Marfa in his, in his warehouse, yes, down there, uh, in Amarillo. And he was, he was working with Stanley Marsh, who was sort of the patron for all of this. And they had a falling out and a very funny story. Um, and so we actually tried to contact Chamberlain uh, to see, or the Chamberlain estate, because I think he had passed away by this time, to see if we could get this work or how could we could restore it, because it's in pretty bad shape. And he basically hung up on us. <laughs> was like, no, I don't want to talk to you guys. Uh, and so uh, it's a, it's kind of this weird context of art history. So we really kind of took the idea and, and ran with it with the Don Chamberlains. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Mm -hmm.
And you have this history, yeah, which we've been talking about all week. Yeah, Emerald has a very unique art history, and I think I was able to, I think I raised the word suck the marrow out of it. Uh, <laughs> um, and it's something I find very unique because really, you know, I've always been an artist. I always knew I wasn't going to be an artist. I didn't know that that was possible because my parents didn't really take it seriously. Um, but it was an exposure to Emerald Ramp that really allowed me to understand that art is bigger than what I thought it was. Um, you know, I was aware that I could be an artist. I didn't have any strategies on how to do that or with how to understand. I didn't understand modern work, contemporary work. I was very caught up in what I would call graphic design and role-playing games and comic books and that type of art, you know, very illustrative. And I remember going out to Emerald Ramp in my early 20s. Um, this is your first time? Yeah, the very first time. Oh, and so I go to Amarillo Ramp. Yeah, yeah. So I go, and so I was I was a ranch hand uh, at, at Toad Hall where Stanley Marshall lived, uh, which means I cut down trees and mowed fields and worked with his weird ranch animals. This is the... The, the patron, the yeah. Rich patron. Yeah, the rich patron of, of, of Amarillo. Um, and the ranch manager came and was like, hey, you should go out to see this sculpture. And I'd heard vaguely about this. And I heard more that this artist had died making the sculpture. I didn't really know much more than that. Um, and I remember in the car, sitting in the back seat, and they were taking a person from New York City out to the ramp. And they were having this really intense conversation about minimalism and conceptual art and all these things that I was kind of just blown off by. Like, oh, this is, you know, whatever. Uh, and I remember going out there. And as you go up, you know how you see it, it kind of just pops up on the horizon. And I saw it and was like, what, what is this? This is a joke, right? Like I was actually kind of mad about it. Like, oh. how did Stanley get conned into doing this? Is this art? This is a total joke. You know, this is really ridiculous. And I was angry. Um, and I, as they got out of the car, they went down. And I remember we walked past and there's that stone stood up that we looked at. And that's where the ranch manager, like, this is where my friend died. His friend was Richard Curtin, who was the photographer on the airplane when Smithson's plane went down. And so that sort of gave me a little bit of pause. Like, yeah. these guys died making this work of art. So that makes it a little bit more serious. Uh, we Hickmet, when she was here the other day, was talking a lot about phenomenology. And so it made me at least become more aware of the space and go, well, why is this work so important? Why is this pile of dirt so important? Why would this person die for this thing? Right. Um, and so I was sort of turned on, I guess, in, in some weird way. And you start at the bottom of the ramp and you kind of walk up. And I was desperate trying to engage, you know, the horizon, how is this working? And, you know, being out in the West Texas countryside is, is relaxing. You know, it's very beautiful and it's very entertaining. And I remember very clearly getting to the top of the ramp and sort of being, you know, if this is art, I don't really know what art is. And I kind of all of a sudden, like, I probably should learn about art if I'm going to be an artist. And I went and that's basically what I consider the beginning of my contemporary art career. Wow. Um, and I, I feel very lucky to have that, I think. You know, a lot of people will walk into a museum and see a Titian or a, a Rembrandt or something that inspires them. And really, I had Emerald Ramp. That was it. I didn't have this large exposure to art. And since then, I have, you know, exposed myself to as much art as I possibly could see. Um, but it gave me this long conversation with a single work of art. And I sort of reverse engineered my way through art history. So I learned about Emerald Ramp. And then I learned about Smithson. And I learned about Land Art. And then I learned about Minimalism. And then I learned about Duchamp. And I moved, you know, and so I sort of went backwards through art history wow. and really uh, deciphered it that way. Uh, and I always see it sort of as the beginning point. And so I, and I was telling this, we were discussing this the other day. Uh, and I was like, I've 
Smithson is so foundational to the way I think about art that sometimes I have a hard time telling if they're my ideas or his ideas. And I remember Amy actually saying when she was talking to Nancy Holt uh, when we were writing this article about Amaryl Rand, that she was, uh, she, well, I'm sorry. Amy. Amy Von Lintel is the art history professor at WT. Uh, we were collaborating on this project and we were discussing with Nancy and I basically had been writing random things for 15 years about Amaryl Rand and I took it to Amy and was like, sort this out and it was you know very journal you know narrative driven not any citations or any of that so she took it and made it sort of art historic and backed up the facts and took it all and she said that remember talking to nancy like i can't tell if those are john's words or if those are robert's words they sound like smithson but it doesn't sound like smithson and i always took that as a compliment i know it kind of gave her a lot of frustration but it really made me think that i you know i was doing something unique you know and i think that being able to be exposed to this sculpture for 25 years now has always been the sort of i've been able to check my head by going back to it uh, and really responding to what i think art should be and what it should do for people and how it fits into culture <laughs> Um, I'd like to talk about this other thing, mm -hmm. which is, um, so I didn't know anything about Agnes Martin. Mm -hmm. I, I had heard her name, mm -hmm. but I didn't really know the art. And then they had a show of hers at LACMA, mm -hmm. and I went to go see it. And what they do in the show is they differentiate, you know, uh, pre-New Mexico mm -hmm. and post-New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's subtle mm -hmm. to most people, I think. But the more you look at it, it's so obvious yeah right yeah it's, it's almost like she was de uh, predestined yeah or destined yeah to go to new mexico and then when she gets there she gets fortified yeah and in your paintings mm -hmm. um i'm wondering do you do you does that resonate with you that open space open resonates yeah. with me a lot a lot of my paintings do come from landscape imagery sometimes they do sometimes they don't but it is i mean just the simple fact if you notice i use tessellations and for you guys who don't know, uh, whoever is going to hear this, you know, you think of the Alhambra and, and a lot of the, uh, the, yeah, the tiling in Morocco. Um, it's gear is the word they call that, uh, and you see that, but it's all very linear and very symmetrical. And so, what I do with my paintings, just a simple move, is alternate the axis, and that opens it up and gives it this what we call the all-over composition. So it gives the sense of the painting is expansive beyond the walls of the painting or around the borders of the painting, and that's sort of a trick, you know, that you learn from Jackson Pollock early on, um, and that's I, I like that, and so I do want my paintings to feel like they're bigger than they really are, uh, and I would paint rooms, and I've done murals, and I like working big. Yeah, I think yeah. that's something that's always affected me. But it's not just Pollock. I mean, yeah. you could say Caravaggio did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although the diagonals, and I mean, you could get into right. all those people before him who were ahead of it. You, you also have this connection to O'Keefe, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's a that's a weird thing. Yeah. I always kind of. Talk. She, uh, I technically have her job. She taught at my university a hundred years ago, and she taught <laughs> at the high school where I went. Um, and she did develop her kind of signature Southwest style here in in 
this area. So before New Mexico, yeah, before New Mexico, so she moved here. I think she came here in 1917. If I'm not mistaken, I may be off on my dates. And she taught at the high school, and then she got a job at the university where I where I teach now. She at, taught at Amarillo High School. Yeah, at Amarillo High School. Yeah, what? Um, oh. a long time ago. Uh, and then she got a job at what time was called West Texas Normal College, and it was a it was like teacher school essentially. Uh, and she was the head of the art program. Uh, but she also taught painting and drawing and all of those things. So, uh, and then she would go to Powderell Canyon, which is about eight miles away from Canyon, Texas. Okay. Uh, and she began making these watercolors uh, of the landscape. And there's a painting, uh, like lightning storm over over or the store rolling in or something else, where you see that kind of stylized O'Keefe landscape starting to happen. Um, I imagine that it probably wasn't the easiest for her being a progressive New York City woman in, in 1920 Texas Panhandle. Uh, so she did go back to New York for a while and then she moved out to New Mexico uh, and kind of got engaged with the arts community that was inside of Taos and then moved out to Abiquiu and all of that later. How, how did you... I mean, you you uh, you were you wanted to become an artist, and then you labeled yourself a ranch hand, mm -hmm. and then how did you become sort of the caretaker of Amarillo uh, Ramp? Uh, I don't know. I'm not. I don't have. No, I have no official title now. Um, I right. think I, I'm pretty much what I would call the regional expert of it because I've done the most research about it and I've exposed it. I, I, I what I became was the official tour guide. Uh, I worked off and on for Stanley Marsh for 10 years, and I think the second time I went around, I was, I'd already been in school for a while, and I was really into the art history by then and really excited about it, and he had basically kind of lost interest in Amarillo Ramp, you know, oh, nice. uh, and for a long time, he was the gatekeeper, like, you had to go talk to him, and if he liked you, you got to see Amarillo Ramp, and if you didn't, you didn't get to see Amarillo Ramp, and he kind of gave that up, and so basically, any time, I just started taking everybody out to Amarillo Ramp, like, they were like, you do it, because you like it, you're kind of excited about it, so... So you he do sort it. of passed the baton. Yeah, exactly. Because he, he trusted you. Yeah, he trusted right. me, and he knew that I meant well about it, and I wasn't trying to, you know, get away with anything, and I think he knew that I was very genuine about it. Because, I mean, he remembers, you know, I wasn't ever, when I say ranch hand, that's a, with quotes around it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was, a, I was a hippie freak. I had dreadlocks right. and was, you know, <laughs> not like anybody from, you know, and we were really the, what we say in this article we just wrote is we were the freaks. We were these weird kids, you know, who, who didn't fit into the status quo of Amarillo. Um, and, and Stanley sort of gave us a home base and a unit and taught us to feel like a group. Uh, Amarillo's what we call counterculture scene where all the freaks hung out was very diverse. You know, I was a hippie, but I hung out with the punk rockers and we hung out with the hip hop kids. And we hung out with the gay kids and we all sort of got together and formed these, you know, shows and event centers that we all would go to and kind of create a unified scene. And so I find that very interesting. Um, because it just taught us to be ourselves and it gave us sort of a, a, a very safe environment to function in. And, and Amarillo can be hostile. Uh, I don't know if we've talked about the movie Bomb City, which is about a friend of mine, Brian Denneke, who was murdered in 1997 um, by some what we'll call preppy kids. Uh, and the kid actually got off on self-defense, but he ran him over with a car. Uh, and so it's this sort of you know, it was this really hostile environment that we grew up in. I mean, we had art shows and punk rock shows, and sometimes these, these groups of prep kids would show up and we'd have fights, you know, and so you had to actually learn to stand your ground. And, and despite the controversy figure that Stanley Marsh is, you know, he did teach us to stand our ground in some way and that we were 
we were supposed to be who we were and we weren't bad for being the way we were uh, and that really did stick with I think a lot of us to some extent So of course you never met Robert Smith said. I never did. But you uh, knew Nancy Holt. I knew Nancy Holt, um, but <laughs> the relationship took about 15 years. Uh, I literally remember Stanley gave me her phone number in the late 90s, and I called her and was like, oh, I'm so excited and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, yeah, you need to calm down, and almost like hung up on me. Oh. And it took like every, you know, five years later, I tried to reach out to her again, and she would be sort of standoffish. And, right. you know, and even when we started the article about Emerald Ramp, and that was in 2012 or 2011 uh, she didn't really want to talk to me she talked to Amy Yvonne Lintel uh, but by the end of the whole experience she was talking to me and we never actually met in person um, but we, she she talked to me she started to realize I think that I was the one who was serious you know into the into the point of when I went to her memorial service in Santa Fe that one of her friends brought me the construction of Animal Ram video and was like Nancy wanted you to have this she thought it would be a very important because um, I think, you know, she realized at the end of the day, I was really one of the only people who really actually did care about Emerald Ramp and really did want to see what happened with it because right. it it gets lost. You know, people don't think about it. When I saw it in 19, I think it was 94 when I first went out there, it was overgrown. Like, people didn't go out there very much. Mm -hmm. uh, and since then, more and more people have been going, uh, and it's gotten more publicity. Um and one of the things we're trying to do with the preservation of it is to kind of standardize the access of how to get out there. It's a pretty normal system. Uh, you get on the website, you look it up, you contact my friend Brad, um, and then he arranges tours. And sometimes he can't do it and he'll call me and I can do it. Or uh, if we can't do it, though, you don't get to go, you know, right. or if it's raining, you can't go. Uh, and so we've thought of other ways of doing it. And that's kind of the conversation we're having right now. You know, and it's something that I've done for free for years. You know, Brad is part of his job and he enjoys that. But if he's busy doing something else at his job, then he doesn't do it either. Right. It's, you know, it is what it is. It's trying to figure out how to save this thing and educate the public. I mean, no one in Amarillo really knows about it unless they've known me and heard me talk about it, basically. Some, I, was it you that said this, or was it Hickman? But something to the effect of when these artists were actually creating these things, there was no concept that people would be coming out to. Look oh at. yeah, totally. Uh, Ant that Farm blew me away. Yeah, Ant Farm had no idea that they were gonna become this icon of culture. Uh, you know, they were like, we were so stoked just to get it in the ground right. that the once it was done, we didn't think about that in the long term. And they actually made a pretty smart decision early on by you know making sure they retain copyright imagery of, of that. Uh, and that's been their bread and butter for many years. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that. That was intelligent, but at the end of the day, you know, when Chip, I took Chip out there just three weeks ago, Chip Lord of the Ant Farm, uh, you know, he is a little shocked because it's in really bad shape. Uh, and actually the graffiti doesn't bother anybody. It's the vandalism, the smashing of the hoods and the stealing of the tires and just the blatant littering everywhere. Uh, and that's not what he envisioned for that. You know, he didn't have a very clear vision of what it was going to look like. But, uh, you know, in his mind, what he said is most important to that sculpture is one, the profile. 
the cars need to retain that profile too. The actual cars still have to be there. Because right. I came with a really great idea where we cast them in bronze and then move the actual cars out. Yeah. He, he wasn't a huge fan of that idea. <laughs> he, he's a ready-made. You know, he was a very idea, very linked to the idea of the Duchamp. This is a ready-made. These are these cars. These are specific cars for this space. I see. Um, and so it is kind of interesting. I think Smithson definitely was thinking about those things. I just think he didn't get to live... You know, and I think when when he died, it just again became the same type of thing with Calac Ranch, where we're just going to get it finished. And not just you know the human residue, but the sort of conceptual residue. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, you, you know, a little bit about yeah, Demario definitely was one of the only artists who really prescribed how you view the work. You know, and that's something that I think a lot of the other artists haven't done, and so I find that very interesting. Um, I actually, I'll, I'll be 100% honest, the only major artwork I've seen were the Smithsons. I've seen Emerald Ramp, I've seen Spiral Jetty, I've seen the one in Holland, the Broken Circle, and, um, Spiral Hill, uh, and I. I do owe it to myself to go and look at the ones in the Southwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, but I think it's, uh, and it's not that I'm not interested in it. I think that I enjoy earth art uh, or land art so much because of the scale of it. And again, while I didn't see the big name ones, you know, I grew up around Cadillac ranch, which is still considered land art. Uh, we had the floating Mesa out here, which is another mm-hmm. land art where I Who came. The uh, that's Andy Lasseter. He is a landscape architect out of Minnesota. Um, and then we also had the Blue Rocks, which is unfinished sculpture by Jean Varon. But that, it was a weird, because we used to go out there and party when I was a kid, and we didn't know it was land art. And same with Ran- Cadillac Ranch. You would go out and party, and you didn't realize it was art. But growing up around those types of things, I think, definitely had an impact on me. Uh, I mean, in the, one of the projects I started working on, how I came connected with Stanley Marsh, was called The Sign Project. And he had this group of artists called the Dynamite Museum. And we put 3,000 street signs all over Amarillo. So all of a sudden, you realize you're making an art project the size of a city. Uh, and that was really uh, eye-opening for me as a young artist. And it also, I think, kind of biased me to not think about scale as an issue. Like, uh, And I used to teach a 3D design class, and the last project would be, think of the biggest sculpture you could make. Like, what you know, if you had unlimited resources, what would you do? You know, and how would you think like that? And I think that exercise really allows you to uh, go to bounds you would never suspect. Again, on October 26, 2018, we accompanied Spiral Jetty and Cyclo author Hikmet Lowe to Amarillo Ramp. Although she's a leading expert on earthworks, it was her and many of our first time to see this iconic work by Robert Smithson. What you're about to hear is just a couple of minutes of us approaching the earthwork and walking up the ramp. How are you feeling, Hickbit? I'm I'm overwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty overwhelmed right now. I mean, I've thought about this for decades, so it's like really weird. Walking up the ramp now. 
It's amazing how well it lasted. Mm -hmm. No, we came out with brushes and realized it oh, wasn't coming off. Hi. Hi. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you for making this happen. You kidding? This is amazing. <laughs> Oh, okay. And the floating mace, you can't really see it, but it's like an inch over. Now I see. Line. Yeah, I can see. I'm going to say something that I've heard 10 million times people say about the spiral jetty. It's so much smaller than I thought it would it be. Is. It is. The scale shifts when you get involved with it. Oh. Well, exactly. That concludes another episode of Visitings. Thank you to John Revit for taking the time to speak with us. Appreciate it, John. A warm thank you to Hickman Lowe and the others who accompanied us on this journey, including Andreas Dang, Professor and Art Gallery Director at Cal State University, Dominguez Hills, and Lisa Lee Favre, who's the Director of the Holt Smithson Foundation, and from her staff, Brenda M. Fulstead. Um, you can find more information about Smithson and Nancy Holt work at holtsmithsonfoundation.org. And of course, you can find more episodes of Visiting's radio show at SoundCloud, iTunes, dublab.com, or our website, visitings.net. So if you visit us on SoundCloud or iTunes, please leave a comment so more people can learn about our show. That's how that works, I guess. Thanks, as always, to the Echo Park Film Center and Dub Lab for their support. I'm Alan Akagawa sitting in my living room in Koreatown saying thank you for listening to Visitings. Mm -hmm.